Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisbee and this week we talk to Uber Bear Peter Schiff, author of Crash Proof. Andrew Bell of Regency Mines tells us about his company and gives us some insight into the nickel situation. And finally, we have a transcontinental conference call discussing the recent slide in the dollar and the possibilities of a May correction in the gold market with Mike Hampton, Campbell Smythe of the Phoenix Gold Fund and Dave Skarika of Addicted to Profits. A reminder of our disclaimer that what you hear in this show is an expression of opinion only and doesn't constitute advice to buy or sell anything. And a reminder that mining companies do pay a fee to appear on the show. Not a lot, but without it, we wouldn't have a show. Commodity Watch Radio at Minesite.com Peter Schiff is president of Euro-Pacific Capital. Uh, he's an investment advisor and a well-known economic commentator with articles published just about everywhere and appearances on just about every major business channel. I first became aware of him last summer when I saw him on CNBC arguing about the definition of inflation in what I thought was one of the most brilliant pieces of television ever. And it's a real pleasure for me to welcome him onto the show now. Peter, your latest book is called Crash Proof, How to Profit from the Coming Economic Collapse. Uh, I take it your outlook isn't exactly rosy for the US, but uh, what about the UK? What do you think's in store for us? Well, you know, I don't, you know, I don't give too much thought uh, to, you know, how bad I think it might get in other countries. I mean, my primary motivation is to try to help my clients, predominantly Americans, although we do have clients in the UK and around the world, but it's mostly Americans who I'm trying to get out of harm's way and get out of the United States because I see a lot of problems here. Now, I recognize there are some similarities. You have some similar problems in in the U.K. In fact, even in the entire English-speaking world, I mean, I see some of these problems in, in Australia and in New Zealand and some other places where, where I'm also investing money, to be honest with you. I mean, we have a lot of money invested, not as much in the U.K. We have a little bit of money in the U.K., some utilities and some properties trust there, but we have a lot more invested in, in Australia and New Zealand, even though I, I see some of these problems where, you know, there's not enough domestic savings. They do run uh, a current account deficit or trade deficit. Um, and they do have an overvalued housing market, which I think might be artificially impacting consumption. But I don't think that they that the problems are to the extreme that they are in the United States. And I don't think, you know, I look at it, it's almost like a triage where I think uh, the problems in America are the most acute and, 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 and therefore the most likely to surface. You know, the ones in the U.K. might surface eventually, but it might be, you know, many, many years uh, later than, what, than the United States. Well, I mean, I understand that one of your your big bugbears in the, in America is the uh, the artificial growth of the money supply, which is running, I understand, at about eleven percent. Yeah, well, but that money supply is growing everywhere. I mean, so it's not just the United States. I mean, just about every economy in the world, the central banks are creating a lot of inflation. Well, exactly. Um, I mean, ours is at, ours is fourteen percent. 
Yeah, and and I think one of the reasons that that this is happening, I think I think the the, the focal point is the United States. I mean, I think that we are uh, you know increasing our money supply, and then central banks around the world are increasing theirs in order to maintain some stability in the exchange rates relative to the dollar. So we're debasing our currency, and so the rest of the world debases theirs. So on a relative basis, it doesn't appear as if the dollar is collapsing. But, I mean, if you start to look around the world at commodity prices, you can start to see uh, the the extent of this inflation because prices for commodities are rising sharply in all currencies. And even now, finally, the price of gold and and monetary metals, they're rising as well. And it it shows the extent to which money is is being debased. And, you know, I, I think a lot of politicians, particularly in Asia, you know, are, are making the mistake of, of, of thinking that somehow their their economies are, are are vulnerable if America stops consuming, or that somehow the fact that we're consuming so much is some you know is, is vital to their own economies, and it's not. And I, I, I devote a lot of time to explaining why that's not the case in in my book Crash Proof. Uh, but I think at some point. Um, they're going to rise up over there. And I think one of the reasons, of course, probably that some of the European money supplies have been able to grow as fast as they have is because, uh, you know, the Japanese and the Chinese are, you know, expanding their own money supplies at such rapid paces, and they're saving a lot. As you, as citizens in these countries are getting worried about, you know, inflation domestically or the purchasing power of their money, and they're looking to higher yielding currencies, a lot of money is, is moving Towards those markets, and so it, the central banks are expanding money supply, you know, to accommodate the inflows from Asia. You know, you've got the, the yen carry trade going, where the Japanese are, you know, just looking to put their money any place but Japan. And 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 so, if it wasn't for you know money supply growing as rapidly as it is in Australia and and, and in Europe, those currencies would be even stronger than they are right now. I mean, they're still rising. The Australian dollar hit a 17-year high. But imagine where it would be right now if, uh, you know, they weren't creating as many Australian dollars as they are. You know, it's rising despite that. What do you think the indicators, the signs will be that uh, the Asians are wising up to the fact that they don't need American consumers? Well, I mean, obviously, if they stop buying dollars, that'll be a pretty good sign. But, I mean, the dollar will collapse pretty quickly when that happens. But I think it's already happening. I mean, people are are starting to see the United States in a different light. I mean, just last week, I think the uh, the market capitalization of European stocks for the first time since before the First World War exceeded the market capitalization of American stocks, and and that's very significant. And I, that's going to continue. And you know, European stocks are going to continue to gain relative to the United States, and that will let the Asians start to see the United States in a more diminished role when they start to see, you know, another community of potential, uh, you know, trading partners uh, being wealthier than, than, than the United States. And so that diminishes our importance. But also, you know, as China starts to develop, you know, the middle class starts to develop as, uh, you know, the currency is slowly appreciating in, in China now, you know, they've got billions of consumers in China. I mean, they don't need Americans. And the thing is, the Chinese consumers are actually working for a living, you know. I mean, there's a much more viable market there 
they're working and helping to produce real goods. I mean, we're not doing that. We're working in, in the service industry. We're just pretending to work. You know, we're not actually making anything. I mean, some of us are, but, I mean, the vast majority of us aren't. So at some point they'll realize that, you know, the, the key to, to, to wealth and the key to an economy is producing and the ability to produce. That consumption is just is, is, is the ends. Production is the means. And as long as you can produce, it doesn't. You know, you don't have to worry about who consumes it. You know that our role. I mean, you know, you know, we're living. You know, we're all, almost like royalty uh, in that the rest of the world just pays tribute to us. And you know, but for what? Well, I can't answer that question for your past history, for your reputation. The um, Now, I mean, you're a notorious housing bear and uh, the housing market seems to be collapsing in the States. When did the bull run in the States begin? Was that in the, in the mid-90s? Well, yeah, you know, I remember, because I remember one of the, one of the you know, I mean, I have failed to uh, make a profit off of the stupidity of my fellow Americans many, many times, and housing is no exception. I remember when I first got married, um, it was uh, in 2000. And up until then, I really wasn't thinking about buying a house or buying real estate. I mean, it wasn't on my mind. I was renting. I didn't know where I was going to be. I mean, just buying a house didn't make any sense. Now, when I finally got married, it was something that, well, most people do kind of like wrote. Okay, you're married. Now buy your house, right? Mm-hmm. So when I got married in 2000, I got married, you know, in the end of 2000. And I was looking at real estate at the time to buy. I was looking at houses in Newport Beach. Now, at the time, you know, I knew that almost all the new developments were being bought up by, you know, dot-com millionaires and not, you know, people who, were, you know, worked at all these dot-coms and that were in uh, in Orange County. And, you know, most of these new, you know, McMansions were being bought by these types, and they had, they were, guess, you know, they were flush because they had options that were paying off. And so I remember thinking, well, gee, you know, I should wait a couple of years because the stock market's going to go down. You know, all these dot-com companies are going to crash. All these people that thought they were going to get rich with stock options aren't going to have money. Meanwhile, they're still building all these new homes. Uh, no one's going to be able to afford them because they're not going to have the money. I'll rent for a year or two, and I'll wait. And they had already gone up, like 1998 and 99. You know, prices had already started going up pretty decently. And I, and I had attributed that to the wealth effect associated with the, with the Internet bubble, specifically from 1998 to 2000. So I thought it made sense to wait it out. Well, the NASDAQ dropped from 5,000 to 1,000. I mean, just kind of like I expected. Almost all these companies went bankrupt. But real estate prices, instead of going down, they went sideways for a little bit and then took off like a rocket ship. <laughs> and houses that I was renting. I remember I was renting a house, uh, a townhome in Newport Beach. When I rented it, they were selling for a million, a million one. When I moved out less than two years later, they were selling for more than two million. And these were townhomes, attached townhomes. So, I mean, I, I think I think it kind of started in the late 1990s, but it really took off uh, in you know for 2002-ish to 2000 and. Uh, 2004, 2005 is when prices literally doubled in, in, in you know, in, in like California and places like that. Uh, and I think we peaked out. I think the prices peaked out probably a year and a half ago to two years ago. I mean, in general. I mean, they, they, they claim that prices have been rising still for the last year, but I, I think those statistics are very dubious. We had a big collapse uh, um, that uh, reached a kind of bottom in about 93, 94, and then basically prices have 
started to go gradually up through the 90s and then since just basically mirroring what's happened in the states our housing market has continued to rise but last year when yours went down in london our properties went up by another 20 25 percent i mean there's just no sign of a crash here do you see one coming well, look, wherever there's a bubble, it's going to, it's going to collapse. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, I mean, I think, and I think residential real estate, and as a real estate investor, we own a lot of commercial property around the world, uh, through, uh, property trusts. And, you know, I've always thought that the commercial market was a much, much better value, and I thought that residential property was overpriced. I mean, pretty much anywhere I looked at it. Um, but, you know, and I think prices are going to come down. The question is going to be, you know, what kind of effect does it have on, on the economy or how dependent is an economy on housing, not only as an industry, but as a wealth, as a theoretical wealth creator in that if people have housing equity that they access it somehow uh, and spend it. Now, you know, there's a wealth effect where, you know, people can think that they have a lot of wealth in a house and therefore spend more than they otherwise would. Maybe they feel that they don't have to save anymore, and so that can influence spending and consumption. But in America, I mean, I mean it's certainly a lot more than that, because not only has housing wealth caused people not to save, but we've actually spent that wealth, because people have been able to borrow against the appreciation in their homes, and they've spent that money. And, I, and, and, and the worst part is because of these creative mortgages, a lot of people have borrowed against their homes using temporarily low interest rates where, you know, they get a teaser rate or they get an interest only or negative amortization where there's a period of time, two years, three years, five years, where the interest that they're paying isn't really enough to cover the money that they've borrowed. And this is creating a lot of temporary purchasing power, but at a great cost. Because when these loans reset, all of a sudden, uh, the borrower is faced with a staggering increase in his payments, and of course, he doesn't have the money. And, and I think that's the point where we're just starting at here in the United States. I don't know how much this is going on in the UK, but I mean, it's rampant. It's a national pastime here, and I think mortgage fraud, you know, is probably another you know national pastime. And I think there's so much, so many kickbacks and being paid to appraisers, and and so many homes that are being sold under fraudulent terms uh, where money is being kicked back to the buyer or, or spread around. And, uh, I mean, it, it, we won't know the extent of it in, in, until the end, but, I mean, it, it, it's amazing the things that have been going on under the last few years, and a rising real estate market has covered it all up. And even though a lot of that rise was, was, was artificial. Mm-hmm. We have a thing over here called the self-certified mortgage, which basically means you can state how much you own. Yeah, that's what we have here, stated income loans. You call them, I think, lie to buy. We're calling them liars, you know, liars loans. But, yeah, I mean, you know, but the fact that somebody would lend money without, without you know, somebody being able to prove that they can pay it back, it's all ridiculous. But this, of course, was going on during the bubble because nobody cared. It didn't matter. As long as you borrowed money to buy real estate, what was the problem? Because the real estate would always go up. So if you couldn't pay the mortgage, well, the bank would or the lender would just take the property. Well, in the event of um, hyperinflation, which is uh, uh, you describe as a very real possibility in your book, surely it's better to hold hard assets. Yeah, I would not include real estate, though, as a hard asset. I mean, if there's going to be hyperinflation, you're better off with real estate than cash. Okay, there's no question about that but you're going to be better off with gold or you're going to be better off with, you know, silver or 
any other metal, or you're going to be better off with, you know, oil or, you know, corn or cotton, you know, or, you know, real estate is going to lose value relative to commodities and other resources in a hyperinflation. I mean, it just will. And, and I also think that, you know, real estate is going to lose value in some places relative to real estate in other places. So for, for my clients who are Americans, I think real estate in the United States is going to lose a lot of value, not only relative to, you know, gold or foreign currencies, but it's going to lose a lot of value relative to real estate in other parts of the world. Now, that might be the case in the U.K. too. I mean, maybe real estate in the U.K. will lose value relative to real estate in Germany or relative to real estate in Japan or real estate in China, you know. Um, but I think U.S. real estate is going to lose a lot of that because I think Americans collectively are going to be a lot poorer. You know, and, and, and we're the ones that have a, a very phony economy. You know, our economy is completely dependent on the willingness of the rest of the world to exchange the products that they produce for the money that we print and, 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 and lend us the money to do it, to boot. And, and when, when that stops and America has to function as a viable economy, meaning that we can only borrow from domestic savings and we can only consume what we produce ourselves or we can only import something that we can export uh, to pay for it. I mean, exporting another product. And when we have to do that, there's going to be a substantial decline in our standard of living. Americans are going to be poorer. And so real estate will naturally be worth, will be less valuable in America because Americans themselves will be poor and will not be able to pay as much rent for real estate. And, uh, you know, whether that happens in the UK, I mean, I think, I think, I think the UK is going to be better than the US. I don't think that, I think we have more severe problems, but you certainly have your share of problems. And, you know, if I lived in the UK, I would certainly not want all of my wealth, uh, in, in sterling. I would want money invested abroad. I'd want money in Asia. I'd want money in other European countries, but I wouldn't want any money in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> Now, what about the uh, U.S. stock markets uh, in, uh, in in your outlook? What's going to happen there? Do you think? Well, I mean, the U.S. stock market's overpriced. I mean, it's going to lose value. I mean, uh, if there's hyperinflation, of course, it won't lose nominal value in in dollars. It'll certainly lose value in in, in sterling or euros or other currencies, but it might not go down in in, in dollar terms. Uh, but in in real terms, I think the price will fall sharply. You know, I think that number one. Earnings, American corporate earnings are going to be hurt, the real earnings anyway. I think something like 40 or 50% of our earnings come from financial services. Even, even though the companies earning them are not financial service companies, you know, a lot of their earnings end up coming from financial services. And I think those earnings are going to plunge. I think a lot of, you know, there's a lot of bad debt out there and a lot of people have borrowed money they can't pay back. And I think a lot of these earnings are going to turn into losses. So I think you're going to see a plunge in earnings. Plus interest rates are going to rise. I mean, that's going to, add additional expenses to Americans, companies that have debt to service. Uh, as the market goes down, that's going to, you know, some of our companies, of course, have pensions that are underfunded. They'll be more underfunded when the market goes down. That'll be a drain on earnings. And, you know, as interest rates rise, and I think ultimately interest rates will rise quite a bit, you know, that's going to, you know, bring multiples down as you have to discount those diminished earnings by a higher interest rate. So I, I think stocks are going to fall sharply, you know, and, and in real terms, you know, they're going to fall, you know, substantially. You know, I mean, they could. I could see, you know, right now I like to price the Dow in terms of gold, and right now the Dow is worth about 18 ounces of gold, I think. 
Uh, let me see. The Dow today is at uh, twelve thousand eight forty. Let me see. Twelve thousand. And uh, gold is about six hundred and seventy. Yeah, nineteen ounces of gold. And I think that we can see that relationship approach one to one. Really. And and you know it, it did that. I point again. I point this out in my book in Crash Proof. But twice in the last century. The Dow went from 20 ounces of gold to one ounce of gold. It went from 20 ounces of gold in 1929. The Dow was worth 20 ounces of gold. In 1932, it was worth one ounce of gold. In uh, in 1966, the Dow was worth better than 20 ounces of gold, and by 1980, it was worth one ounce of gold. So the Dow went from you know lost from 20 to one twice in the last century, and you know so far. You know, this time gold did get as high as 43 to 1. You know, in 2000, I mean, gold, the Dow was worth 43 ounces of gold. Now it's down to 19. But it's, you know, it's close to 20 to 1. But if it repeats what it did in the 1930s and the 1970s, uh, we would go to 1 to 1 again. Now that would mean, that could mean gold is $5,000 an ounce and the Dow is at 5,000. It could mean the Dow is at 10,000 and gold is at 10,000. It could mean the Dow is at 20,000 and gold is at 20,000. It doesn't really matter what the numbers are, just that they're the same. And, then, and therefore, you can see how much value stocks could lose relative to real money. What about silver? Well, the same thing. I mean, obviously, I mean, silver could, could, go, could do even better. I mean, you know, it, it did in the 1980s. I'm not really sure what silver did in the 1930s, but in the 1980s, obviously, you know, silver did even better than gold. Uh, you know, because silver had a had a bigger bigger appreciation. But you know, when you think about it that way, you can really put into perspective the stock market gains. Because if you think about it, in 1929, 90 years ago, the Dow was worth more than it is today. The Dow was at 20 ounces of gold in 1929, and today the Dow is at 19 ounces of gold. So all this phony appreciation, because in 1929 the Dow was at 360, and now it's at 12,000. But that entire gain is inflation mm-hmm. because priced in gold, the market hasn't gone anywhere. Now, there's been a return, of course. The return has been all the dividends. Gold hasn't paid any dividends over the last 90 years, and certainly the stock market has paid a lot of dividends. Although anybody buying the Dow Jones now, the dividend yield is puny. I mean, it's, what is it, 1%? You yeah, know? It's, it's tar- terrible. So, I mean, so the Wall Street likes to pretend you know, oh, you know, we've made so much money in the stock market, but if you price it in gold, it hasn't gone anywhere. What about now? I know you like a, a dividend-paying stock. Uh, do you like the Canadian Energy Trusts? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been buying those, I think, since 96 or 97, and we've done very well with them until the last year when the Canadian government, you know, proposed taxing them. And, and when you combine that with a drop in natural gas prices, you know, many of these trusts took pretty big hits in the last year. Uh, but we, we're still buying them, and I'm still hopeful, but not necessarily, yeah, you know, do I, am I betting on the outcome that the, they will reconsider and they will not impose these taxes? But, you know, even if they do, I think the stocks have fallen uh, to a degree that is excessive based on what they propose. So I think either way they're good buys. But I certainly wish they hadn't proposed this, and I hope that they don't carry it out. Uh, because it, you know, it does, you know, destroy some of the value that that I saw in these trusts when I first started buying them. Uh, but I'm very bullish on the value of the oil and gas that the trusts hold. And there's other companies that we own too in in Canada that are that are trusts that we've owned that are not in the oil and gas business at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we bought them because they had good dividends, and part of the reason they had good dividends was because of the favorable tax treatment. And of course, that is in jeopardy. 
What about uranium? Do you have a view there? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I've been bullish on uranium uh, for a long time. I mean, I regret not having been more aggressive in my accumulation of uranium stocks. Uh, you know, a good friend of mine, you know, bought a ton of them, uh, you know, five or six years ago and just you know, made a fortune. Um, but you know, I've been bullish on uranium since uranium prices were under ten dollars, and you know, they've, they've gone up more than tenfold, twenty twenty dollars in the last week. But the fundamentals are just extremely, you know. Uh, fantastic for uranium, and you know, I remember when I first was looking at it. I mean, I was one of the few people that was predicting this big run up in the price of oil. Uh, but of course, you know, when oil was cheap, nobody was thinking of alternatives, and they were giving uranium away. I mean, I mean, well, most of the uranium producers were, were bankrupt. Uh, you know, the, the you know most of the utilities had been selling forward. I mean, they you know, and you had the Russians that were selling uranium from their warheads. I mean, there was you know, nobody nobody was mining it. Nobody can mine it profitably. The price was so low. Uh, but it was obvious that, uh, you know, that, uh, I mean, to some people, that uh, eventually, you know, they would run out of this uranium and they would continue to build nuclear power plants. And, and, they, and the higher the price of oil got, uh, the more likely it was that China and, and India and, and the rest of the world would be turning towards nuclear power. And you can't have a nuclear power plant without uranium. And there's no substitute. So whatever the price is, they got to pay it. And if it goes too high, it's not like they can just shut down uh, the, the, you know, it's very expensive to shut down a reactor. So the bottom line is, you know, they got to pay the price, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It's too expensive not to buy it, and there's no substitute. So it, unless you get tremendous supply, you get all kinds of suppliers competing with one another. But right now, I just think it's all it's it's all it's all about the demand. There's not enough supply, so it's the prices are probably going to keep going up. I mean, for uranium. Mm-hmm. I don't know when. I mean, there could, there could be some volatile spikes at some time. Maybe it'll be a big drop. But in general, I I, I don't know what the what, what the natural limit is. I don't know, you know, how high uranium prices would go before nuclear power became uneconomical. Because as expensive as uranium is, it's still a very small percentage of the overall cost of providing the power. You know, so it's not like it. You know, it's not like even if uranium prices went to a thousand, that it would be uneconomical. It would probably still be economical. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're making an investment, do you use what trigger points or cycles or other methods do you use to um, determine the the optimum timing, the optimum entry point? Well, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm just trying to help my clients get out of the dollar, you know, so the optimal entry point is right now because (laughs) I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be in the dollar for a day longer than I have to. I mean, I, I think every day as an American, you know, you go to sleep. And the only reason you don't ro- you don't wake up in poverty is because the Japanese or the Chinese kept buying dollars for another night, you know. So I just want to, as soon as I can, I'm looking for value, though. I'm looking to buy defensive stocks. I'm looking for good dividends. You know, I, that's my whole idea. I want to, I want to have income coming from uh, foreign sources so that we have a meaningful cash flow that would, you know, so that the dollar collapses. You know, the value of our income streams will rise to compensate for that loss of purchasing power. But I don't want to buy a lot of high, you know, growth stories. And I am cognizant of the fact that if we do have a major stock market collapse in the U.S., that we're probably going to see, uh, you know, sympathetic declines in equities around the world. So I want to own the stocks that I think will decline the least in that environment and, and stocks that are paying me good dividends anyway. Do, do you think mining companies will go down if we get a major collapse? 
I bought, man, most likely everything will go down. Now, in, will, will everything go down in terms of dollars? Maybe not. As long as the dollar collapses, let's say if the dollar collapses by 50%, well, from my perspective, that means, you know, as long as stocks don't fall by 50% too, I'm still better off as, you know, from a dollar-based perspective. But I think initially some mining companies, maybe the industrial mining companies, uh, the nickel or the copper or the lead, zinc, those types of companies could be initially impacted. Uh, you know, but I think long term, or and long term might only be a matter of weeks or months. The stocks could be higher because I, I think the, the fundamentals for for commodities are very strong. And and even if the U.S. economy collapses into a deep depression, that doesn't mean that demand for these commodities is going to go away. I mean, it might be diminished dramatically in America, but I think it could go through the roof in other parts of the world, particularly places like China, because their currency could really rise sharply when the Chinese stop, uh, you know, subsidizing subsidizing us. But also, it's a function of supply and demand, and I still think that supply is very constrained due to years and years of underinvestment. And there, you know, there's two, you know, parts to the determine prices is demand and supply. And even if demand goes down, if supply goes down faster, you know, price can still rise. Mm -hmm. You know, prices, you know, commodity prices rose a lot during the 1970s. And, you know, there was recessions during that period. So. Do you own a lot of gold miners? Yeah, yeah, I do. Do you own them in Canada or do you own them denominated in dollars or... Well, it doesn't really matter, you know, gold is gold, and so, you know, it, it's a function of, you know, the value of their gold. Now, certainly where they're mining it uh, impacts some of the cost of mining, you know, and it, you know. but I own, I own gold stocks in North America, both in the United States and in Canada. I own them in Australia. I own them in South Africa. You know, and I, some of the companies that I own, you know, have some of their mining operations in, in, in South America or in, uh, in, uh, in other parts of the world. So, I mean, I have gold mines everywhere. Um, and, and, I, and I, you know, one of the reasons that I'm so particularly bullish on gold is I really do believe that gold is going to regain uh, a monetary uh, a premium or it will function once again as money. It hasn't functioned as money in some time. And I think that's because uh, the world has, has been fooled and conned by governments and central bankers. And I think there's been a lot of complacency and misplaced trust in the ability of politicians to manage money in the absence of gold, you know, to just take paper and pretend it's money. And I think as we start to see the type of inflation that we're going to experience globally in the next few years and the problems that are going to be obvious that were a direct result of easy money and credit, and which none of which would have been possible uh, had there been a discipline of a gold standard, I think you know people people who have savings are going to be a little hesitant about trusting politicians, and they're going to be more inclined to want to hold gold. And I think it's very easy to do this day and age, uh, and so I think the role of gold is going to come back. I think you know right now in portfolios, a lot of people who 20 years ago would have held gold, an allocation of gold in their portfolios, now maybe are hedging with derivatives and other instruments that they think give them some type of insurance. And I think when we see major blow-ups in the derivatives and you see a lot of counterparty risk and a lot of these portfolios realize that, wait a minute, they didn't really have a hedge just because they had some derivative contract because the other end of the contract went broke. So I think portfolio managers are going to rediscover 
an allocation to gold. Maybe we should have 5 or 10% in gold, whereas now they have nothing in gold. And I even think central bankers who have been sellers of gold are going to realize that they need to be buying, that they need to have some real reserves behind their currency. They just can't print currency. They need to have something backing it up, something to say, hey, there's some value here. And, uh, you know, the, the percentage of gold held in reserves in foreign central banks is the lowest it's ever been. Meanwhile, production is, I think, South African production. They're the largest producer, and production in South Africa is as low as it's ever been, annual production. So you don't have a lot of supply of new gold. There hasn't been a lot of investment in mining and exploration in the last decade. And, you know, it's under-owned by an, every uh, element of, of the world, whether it's central banks, whether it's, uh, you know, pension funds or, you know, mutual funds or private individuals, gold ownership is very low. And, you know, I think that's all going to change. And, of course, it can't change with gold at $670 an ounce. The price has to go up dramatically before any before anywhere near a significant percentage of the population can own it because there's not that much of it. And that's the idea. I mean, it's got to be. I mean, that's what makes it valuable. One of the reasons it's valuable is because it's scarce. You know, there's not, it's not, it's not in everybody's backyard. Are you a holder of the uh, silver and gold ETFs? I don't own them. I don't own them personally. I, you know, my I have clients that own them. I own a lot of uh, mining stock, and I do own some physical precious metals, but I don't personally own the ETFs. But many of my clients do. I see. And do you have a? Do you think they? I mean, I read a report, uh, uh, an article by James Turk, analysing the silver ETF yesterday, and uh, the suspicion is that they don't have the silver that they say they do. Well, I mean, that's always, you know, a suspicion. Do you trust the auditors? Is there some kind of conspiracy going on? And look, you know, I mean, obviously, and you know, look what happened with Enron. I mean, you know, there can be phony books, and to the if that were the case then, uh, yeah, I, w- I mean, that's a reason not to own it, because if it ever comes out that they don't have enough silver, then the price is going to drop to, you know, reflect however much silver they actually do have. But, I mean, you know, these ETFs are, are you know, the way I look at it, see, you know, there's a plus and a negative. If they're legitimate, if they really are buying and storing the gold and silver that they claim to have, then the fact that these ETFs are there are very bullish for gold because they're making it a lot easier for people to buy it. And, you know, whatever, you know, the easier it is to buy and sell it, the more investors are going to be. And, you know, it's, so it's a bullish thing all around. But if Turk, if that's, if that's actually true, if the, the, the silver ETF is not actually buying silver, it's just issuing shares without buying silver. And if they keep doing that, it's actually bearish in the short run for silver because it means they're creating silver out of nothing. They're just, you know, they're, they're printing shares and pretending that they're backed by silver. Mm-hmm. And which means that demand that would have normally gone into buying silver is going nowhere because the ETF is not buying the silver. But I don't know that that's happening. And if it is happening, in the long run, it's very bullish for silver because it means a lot of people who think they own silver really don't. And when they find out they don't own it, they might have a lot of buying to do <laughs> if that's the case. Now, I have a friend who has a, who has an expression which is the global margin call, and he sees the global margin call coming. And uh, in other words, a global credit crunch because of the national, the debt at national levels, the debt at personal levels, the amount of leverage in the uh, derivatives market. Do you see the global margin call as a as a possibility? Well, certainly there's a lot of uh, money that's been borrowed, and it's been borrowed to accumulate assets that have been propped up. And, 
you know, and if we do have something like that, if, uh, you know, particularly in lower-yielding currencies like the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc, uh, yeah, I mean, if we see a lot of these yen denominated or Swiss denominated debts that need to be repaid, and of course, the money that was borrowed isn't just sitting in a mattress, they, the money was used to buy a theoretically a higher yielding asset, those higher yielding assets are going to need to be liquidated so that the loans can be repaid. And, and so prices could collapse. And then of course, when that happens, you start to see losses, and maybe the people won't be able to repay all the money that they borrowed. And now, you know, the other side of the trade, there's probably, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of doomsday scenarios that, that can play out uh, when you have this kind of speculative uh, bubble globally that we have. But the the ultimate destination is hyperinflation, in your view. Well, hopefully, I mean, that's the worst case scenario. And that's, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know if there's going to be a worldwide hyperinflation. I certainly think that there's a chance that it happens in the United States. I mean, is, is it going to happen in, in every country in the world? I mean, you know, it, it's certainly less likely. It's not impossible. But even if that's what happens and all the paper currencies are wiped out, you know, America is still in, in, in trouble because, you know, we still don't have the factories that we need. We still don't have the, the means of production. I mean, other countries will have that, but it's a shame if you wipe out savings. I mean, it would be a huge loss to the world to see the value of savings destroyed by hyperinflation. Uh, that would be a great loss. I mean, but, uh, it, you know, looking in the United States, it's an outcome that, that, I, that I contemplate, and I, and I hope that we don't go that route. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to have very high inflation. We are. Consumer prices in the United States are going to rise substantially. There's no way around that. Uh, but hopefully they don't rise, you know, infinitely uh, because, you know, the government, the Federal Reserve, does not make that mistake. Now, you know, they might. I mean, they've threatened to do that. I mean, Bernanke has talked publicly about, you know, we need to stop asset prices from falling, and we'll print as much money as necessary to do that. Hopefully they won't do that. But if they do, there's where you run the risk of a hyperinflation. If the Fed just refuses to let real estate prices fall and stock prices fall, uh, because consumer prices aren't going to fall. That's, the one, that's not going to happen. The only prices that might fall in the United States are asset prices. And they need to fall. They're too high. Assets are overinflated. They need to come down. We, in the, in the UK, uh, Peter, we have exactly the same problems as you. We, we produce very little. Uh, our industry uh, over the last 20 years has, has been virtually decimated. We're overly dependent on our housing market and on our financial markets. If you were Ben Bernanke or Gordon Brown or Mervyn King, who's uh, the head of the Bank of England here, what would you be doing now? I mean, I, I mean, if I, if I mean, if I were had been in the Federal Reserve all this time, we wouldn't be in this mess. No, but you've got the job tomorrow. I appoint you head of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> well, that's not. I mean, no one's going to appoint me. But but actually, if I was appointed, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think what I would try to do is I would try to immediately, uh, you know, you know, try to withdraw liquidity. Raise interest rates, and 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 just and and let uh, let the collapse begin, and and try to uh, you know use the bully pulpit you know until they fired me or strung me up uh, to try to explain to the politicians you know what they needed to do to make it easier for uh, you know the American public to dig its way out of this hole. I would probably lobby for you know an elimination of the income tax uh, uh, entirely. 
uh, you know, probably the estate tax, the corporate income tax, you know, an abolishment of Social Security and Medicare and all sorts of government subsidies and a rather substantial reduction in the, the military. And I would try to get the government to just, you know, you know, get rid of three quarters of its spending and cut a lot of regulations and, 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 and try to let, try to have, you know, try to introduce a little more freedom and capitalism back to the American economy. So that over the next generation, uh, we can we can rebuild a, a, a viable economy again. But you know, we'd have we'd have to take our medicine. We'd have to atone for these sins, or you know, we'd have you know, you can't. We, you, there's no way that you can appoint me, and I can think of something, some way out of this mess. There's no way out of it. You know, it's like you know, if 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 I'm a doctor and there's a guy, you know, he's a heroin addict, and you say, well, you know, can you help him with his problem? There's no way to help with his problem without going through withdrawal first. He's got to stop using heroin. And so that's what I would do if I was the Fed chairman, is I would stop injecting the economy with more heroin. I would, I would take it out. But, you know, there's going to be a withdrawal that's going to, ha- that's going to be very severe and very painful because it's gone on as long as it has. But, of course, you know, if we let it go on more, it's only going to be worse. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't do anything helpful by delaying it. I mean, from a politician's point of view, they like it because maybe they can get reelected another time or a couple more times. But it doesn't help the long-term solvency of the nation. So you know that's that's what we got to do, I and mean, you know, and and people have to realize how poor we really are. We have to start living with our means again, and we have to acknowledge the fact that our means have dramatically diminished over the last generation or two, and particularly over the last you know five or ten years when we've gone on an unprecedented you know spending binge, and we've dissipated whatever wealth we had left, and we blew it on the biggest spending party in the history of the world, and we borrowed all sorts of money from all over the world. Uh, to buy buy cars and television sets and and remodel our kitchens and put granite everywhere and you know and, and put in nice fancy appliances and and we've done all sorts of things and we borrowed the money to do it. I mean, it's, it's a disaster what's happened in the United States. Oh dear, it's happened here too. It's happened here too. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show and and talking to me. Well, how do you guys get away with it in the UK then? You don't have the reserve currency. I mean, the the the, the Bank of China, the Bank of Japan, they're not buying pounds. So, well, I mean, they are. Everyone's uh, buying pounds. The pound's stronger than it's been for twenty years. But is it is it central banks? I mean, I guess the I guess because the yields are a little bit higher. I mean, they're not sky high. I mean, the yields aren't as high as Australia or New Zealand. Yeah, but it's better than the dollar. Not people much. Think, well, people think actually no. I think. What 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 are the short term rates in, in the UK? Uh, five and a quarter, I think they are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that's the same as us. We're five and a quarter too, same rate. The 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 point is, I think people think, well, the euro's a flawed currency. Yeah, you know, I thought about that too. I mean, the the euro does have long term problems, and maybe some people in Europe are buying the pound as kind of a well, it's not the euro, so let me take a hedge, you know. Maybe, and remember, there's a lot of money in London. It's a big, big financial centre. It's bigger than New York. The bonuses paid out this year were bigger than the bonuses paid in New York, so that that brings a lot of wedge into the economy. I mean, I'm just offering reasons. I'm not an economist, so I don't know the the the, the, the true reason. But I'm offering. Well, what's the what's the balance of trade in the UK? Uh, it's a deficit. I mean, is it significant? Like, I mean, ours is enormous. Yeah, it's, it can't it's, be anywhere near ours. I think the deficit's about four billion. We run a surplus in services of about two billion, and we run a deficit in goods of about six billion. So the actual uh, overall balance is a deficit of four billion per month. Pounds. What kind of foreign reserves? What do you know? What the foreign reserve position is of the Bank of England? <laughs> All I can say is poor. 
Yeah, it can't be as pathetic as us. I think I think our reserves are about forty billion. I mean, we're. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I do know that Gordon Brown sold all our gold in uh, nineteen ninety nine and bought dollars with it. <laughs> yeah, well, those that that those those gold those gold sales have got to go down in history as some of the biggest blunders that the central banks ever made. I mean, yeah, I remember Australia sold a big chunk, Switzerland. I mean, several central banks were unloading big chunks of gold when gold was under three hundred. Yeah, what a cock up. Do you think that was stupidity or conspiracy, or both? I don't believe in conspiracies. I just think you know, you know, they, it was a foolish thing to do. Remember, at the same time, people were buying internet stocks. You know, I don't think that was a conspiracy. I think people had lost their mind, and you know, it was easy for politicians to say, "Hey, you know, let's sell some gold and 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 fund a social program." You know, why hold on to this asset? It's losing value. It's doing nothing. Why not spend it on education? It was a very popular way to get elected. And, of course, you know, it also helped create confidence in central bankers. And it served a purpose by beating down the price of gold. It made these central bankers look like geniuses because they could show that, look, gold is going down against our currencies because we're doing such a good job. You know, even Greenspan used to point that out. He used to say, we don't need gold anymore because we're, we're, our central bankers, our integrity is taking the place of gold. And he was pointing to the weakness of gold as proof of what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the central bankers were also helping to keep gold weak by constantly selling it. And, you know, people would be afraid to buy it or people would short it because they knew that central bankers were going to come out and, and dump it. Mm-hmm. You know? But now I think the central bankers are more, far more likely to buy gold and sell it in any significant amounts. And I think if any European central banks uh, were foolish enough to sell, I think the Asian central banks would, would gobble it up, particularly China and Russia. Uh, if, I don't know if you believe in cycles, but the UK tends to go with America rather than Western Europe. Uh, the, the Western Europe and the UK are on a slightly different business cycle. So anyway, Peter, it's thank you very much, and keep keep uh, keep up the good work on the telly because it's great seeing uh, the arguments and how much you upset people. It, it makes for brilliant television. Sure, and you you guys from the UK, you can, you can visit my website at www.europac.net. You know, I get a lot of those TV shows. I put them on the site. And, yeah, I think, you know, try to, you can get my book over there. I know there's Amazon over there, but, you know, try to go into some bookstores. If they got Borders over there or Barnes & Noble. And I like to see some copies of Crash Proof start to sell over in the U.K. I mean, I think my book can make a pretty good impact in Europe. I think, uh, in, 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 you know, especially, you know, in, in, in the U.K. I mean, certainly a lot of what I'm saying about the United States applies in a way over there as well, so. Well, I've read it and I recommend it. It's absolutely great. It's well written and um, it's interesting if you're a sophisticated e- economist and uh, but you'll be able to understand it even if you're Joe Bloggs from down the road. Um, but Peter, one more thing. You take on uh, British clients and clients from Western Europe at Euro-Pacific, don't you? Yeah, we have clients from all over the world. I mean, it, it makes sense for everybody to diversify you know, beyond their home country. And what happens in a lot of countries... You know, people make it difficult, the brokerage firms make it difficult to invest in foreign markets. And so, just like Americans have difficulty accessing Hong Kong or Australia, you know, people in the UK may have the same problem. And, and, and so, if they want to deal with one broker who can help them invest their money all around the world, I can do that. Great. Well, why don't you give out your website address one more time? It's www.europac.net. Okay, and I'll put a link to uh, Amazon uh, on the Commodity Watch radio page. Okay, great. Peter Schiff, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com.
Well, nickel has been on a tear recently, and it made all-time highs again last week at $50,000 a tonne. And with me now is Andrew Bell, the chairman of Regency Mines, who are an entrepreneurial metals exploration company active in Australia and Papua New Guinea, with a transaction-driven advisory and investment arm. Andrew, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us what Regency do? Well, what Regency began by doing was getting listed with a little portfolio of uh, nickel sulphide exploration properties in Western Australia and uh, with uh, some base metal projects in Queensland. Uh, what Regency always intended to do was some transactions and help other people get listed and so on. As a result of that over the last two years, we've built up a listed portfolio that's now worth more than the share price uh, and we have retained our nickel focus, but our main nickel project now is one that we've introduced over the last two years, uh, and of course now with the rise in nickel prices, looks extremely good, uh, and that is a lateritic nickel project in Papua New Guinea. Tell us about the project, how much uh, reserve, resource do you have? Okay, let's take a step back and just look at the nickel market. Uh, nickel is not easy to find, because all the nickel in the world was formed in rocks that existed in the first half of the world's existence and uh, nickel deposits divide between sulphide, that is deep and not oxidised, and lateritic deposits, which means oxidised and near surface. And the uh, bulk of the world's reserves are in lateritic deposits. The bulk of production has been from sulphide deposits uh, in Russia, in Canada, to some extent also quite considerably actually in Australia. The problem is that the world can't find enough new sulphide nickel. So increasingly, lateritic nickel deposits, which are two-thirds of the world's known reserves, are what we're going to have to depend on. And two-thirds of them, in turn, are in that island, tropical, subtropical island arc in the Pacific that includes Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Philippines, uh, New Caledonia. And uh, why... Well, let's quickly mention what, what is nickel used for stainless steel above everything else and the beautiful thing about stainless steel is that as soon as uh, is that it's a very much a consumer driven market in other words as soon as people start to get a little bit rich as soon as they're middle class not just by education and taste but middle class in terms of spending power what are they going to go and buy they're going to buy uh, washing machines refrigerators sinks air conditioners cars and those things all use a lot of stainless steel. And that's why the great driver for the rise in the nickel price uh, recently has been the growth of the Chinese economy. And there's, I mean, there's huge shortages on the LME, there's uh, huge shortages everywhere. Is that uh, situation set to continue? Yes. Um, if you, and I think it will continue. If you take China, China at the moment, China is, has a... And, and let's not talk just about nickel, but let's take a step back and look at, uh, iron, at steel production. Mm -hmm. uh, Chinese steel production is over 30 million tonnes a month, say 32 million tonnes. The next biggest is Japan at about seven. The total EU about five. Now you take India, which lags China by 10 or 15 years. That's two million tonnes. Uh, and if you look at nickel demand, where China has now overtaken the United States... 
uh, Indian nickel demand is again a tiny fraction of Chinese. You put China and India together, that's 40% of the world's population having an industrial revolution. But don't forget that there's also uh, Pakistan with 150 million odd population, Indonesia with 200 million odd, uh, Brazil uh, also 200, you know, between those two, 500 million. Vietnam, uh, Vietnam 80 million. 80 yeah. million. Uh, so uh, you have this unprecedented event where a lot of the world's population is having an industrial revolution and they are building huge middle classes and things like car uh, utilization or uh, dissemination of washing machines or air conditioners in China are still at low levels. China's producing 7 million air conditioners a month, 3.5 million refrigerators a month. But these things will continue because 70 or 80 percent of the Chinese population is still uh, agricultural because of Mao's feudal theories about keeping people working on the land. And they're gradually getting permission to leave the land and go to the towns. Uh, but in this country, in developed economies, 1% of the population, at most in agriculture, feeds the rest. So the Chinese situation is quite anomalous. And we saw what happened in Thailand when this process began 20 years ago, the great leap in the natural growth rate of the Thai economy. The Chinese economy so far has been driven by the natural energies of the coastal cities and the freedom that they've been given to adopt capitalist practices. What hasn't happened yet is a major impact from the movement by all the young energetic people into the towns to boost those populations, which will be just the same as a population explosion. China is going to grow by 7% plus between now and 2020. The economy will triple in size. India is going to be catching up fast. The outlook for nickel, particularly with the difficulty of finding new deposits and particularly large new deposits of uh, sulfide metal, is for continuing high prices, continuing huge demand for the development of lateritic nickel deposits, uh, and a really good environment for companies like ours. Now, your Mambare project in Papua New Guinea, I'm pronouncing that correctly, I hope, yeah. um, you're, going to be, you're hoping to be in production within 12 months? Yes, I mean, Mambare is uh, anaconda nickel, uh, had an, an analysed the previous data from 1960s and 1970s exploration, and they reckoned that in the near surface layer, under a thin layer of three to six metres of ash, uh, which in places is zero to two meters, uh, that up limonitic layer contains about 50% iron, 1% nickel, and has potential for, in the known areas which have been drilled, uh, potential for some 200 million tons at 1%, or 830 million tons at 0.78% nickel. Below that, the saprolytic layer, which has not been drilled, because the, the, the drilling equipment that's been used has only been uh, equipment that can go into soft uh, minerals, uh, soft rocks, that uh, saprolytic layer has the potential for another 200 million plus tons at uh, 1.25 to 1.5% nickel, based on the few profiles we've been able to do by making pits. Uh, additionally, the uh, limonitic layer has 0.1% cobalt, and the cobalt price is very high at the moment, 25 to $30 a pound, and has good uh, prospective uh, demand, and that uh, is worth quite a lot of money in, in relation to the, even the high-priced nickel. Um, now, what we believe is that we can, instead of putting up a high-pressure acid leach plant, which eventually we may need to do, which uses high temperatures, high pressures, 
and high acidity. And therefore, those are very expensive plants that cost over a billion dollars and, uh, and can easily go wrong. They have a history in Australia, for example, of going over budget and over time. Uh, we have the possibility of direct shipping our limonite ore. After all, the nickel content alone is $500 a tonne. Uh, and then you've got the iron ore content and potentially the cobalt content on top of that because we have a 110-kilometer road to port and other projects in Papua New Guinea don't have that. Now, we're very lucky because actually it's a, it's a, we're not high up, we're on a plateau and it's easy terrain that's crossed by the road to us. And over the last few years, there's been a great development in the palm oil industry along the whole of this road, including a plant being put right next to our project, which means that the road has been upgraded to port for the palm oil industry, which means that for us to truck ore down that road is relatively easy. And of course, if people can successfully truck similar distances, coal, which depending on grade might be sort of 30 to $60 a tonne, uh, aggregates, which might be $20, $30 a tonne, uh, iron ore, which might be $60 a tonne, manganese might be $100, $110 a tonne. Uh, for us to be transporting by truck uh, material that has an intrinsic metal value of five or six times as much is, is a no-brainer. And uh, uh, there are a number of uh, particularly old furnaces in China now, up the Yangtze River, that are uh, taking in uh, limonitic ore, uh, because with the 50% iron content, it's only just below the normal direct shipping grade for iron ore, and it contains this extremely valuable nickel. So they can then make a pig iron that contains nickel already and use that uh, in order to take the next step and produce stainless steel. Oh, and the ad adaptation of the plant is not in itself complicated, there are, as there always are one or two sort of issues that have to be solved. Uh, like the clay that will be produced in the furnaces. But people are already doing this. Toledo and Racina are already uh, in that business, uh, and we have an opportunity to get into it. And uh, we believe that we can uh, define a resource on the edges of the plateau where the overburden of ash is less, and within five kilometers of the road, and uh, uh, be trucking next year. So, um, Andrew, how much cash have you got and how much is it going to cost you to get to get this into production? Well the funny thing is we just had a placing and we raised money so we have sort of half a million pounds plus uh, we have a ground penetrating uh, radar program and a diamond drilling program on the small area that we're going to delineate first which we can very easily scrape and transport and uh, load onto uh, barges or indeed onto bulkers um, and uh, that whole program uh, is, that we have envisaged at the moment is going to cost not much more than 30-40% of our available cash and we'll be doing it all quite quickly uh, and both from Australian and from mixed equity Australian Papua New Guinean transport firms uh, we can get we can contract out to the transportation side. There will be a lot of competition for that. But the curious thing is that having therefore put ourselves in a position where we can go straight through to a situation where on paper producing a million tonnes a year uh, from 
this very easy to work, very easy to transport limonite ore on paper. Even if we sold at one third of the metal value, we'd be producing profits of over $100 million. You'd think that the market would be happy because we come out, we do presentations, we've been telling people we're doing this for some time. But as soon as we announced that we'd done this placement yesterday, the market makers dropped the price. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I'm going we'll, gonna, to we'll discuss these uh, marvellous market makers on AIM in just a second. But uh, why don't you just quickly tell us... Um, so you've got enough cash to do what you need to do in the short term. Yeah, what is your... I, I love the idea of discussing the role of market makers on AIM because I don't think they have any function at all. The illusion that they create liquidity is quite wrong. They choke off liquidity because who wants to be uh, buying at, say, you know, 2p and, and selling at 2.5p or 2 and 3 quarter p depending on what the market makers decide? It chokes off the private investor. It diminishes liquidity, and a, with the price of computing power having come down so much so that effectively online systems which show all orders in a transparent basis, the buyers and sellers on the screen, uh, that technology is now within everyone's reach. Everyone can see it, and I believe that uh, AIM's market-maker-driven system is the one thing holding AIM back and is prehistoric and medieval, and that the future requires transparency and openness, and that would bring small investors in and increase liquidity. The tax system, too, uh, discriminates against people who want to trade, and it shouldn't, because these people are the essential lubricant, the oil that makes the market work. People buying and selling should be encouraged. Well, Andrew, you are pushing against a very open door and preaching to the converted. We're very uh, anti the AIM market makers on this programme. But um, nevertheless, uh, the, my other bugbear with AIM, by the way, is the ridiculous spreads, uh, which you kind of mentioned. Um, but nevertheless, you're listed on AIM. What do you do about it? Well, we also have a listing on Frankfurt. So people who uh, get annoyed by uh, the market makers' spreads on AIM, I suggest they go and uh, trade our stock on Frankfurt. What can I say? That makes a great deal of sense. What well, is I'm one sixteenth German, but uh, <laughs> I don't want to sound too unpatriotic. <laughs> Tell us, how many shares are there outstanding, and uh, what's your market cap? Well, we've got 170 million shares outstanding. That's 2p. That gives us a market cap of uh, 3.4 million pounds. But you know, whether we're 2p. Uh, yeah, before, uh, a couple of weeks ago, our, our spread was 1.75p to 2.5p. One market maker marked down to 2.25p, the others tended to follow. Then we were sort of 1.5 to 2.25. We came out with the announcement that we placed stock yesterday, and one market maker was even making a price of 1p to 1.75p or something. This morning it seems to be uh, a, a 1.5 to 2p or something like that. What it's going to be tomorrow, who knows? But with those sorts of games being played, I think it's completely unfair on the private investor. All I can say is that at 3.4 million pounds, our holdings in other listed companies are worth more than the market cap. We've got a reasonable amount of cash, and we have a project that, if it's worth anything, is worth uh, tens of billions. And uh, two of the largest metal companies in China, the largest uh, nickel producer and the largest trading company, have signed confidentialities with us. And the latter in particular, which supplies half the stainless steel industry in China, is extremely keen to come and uh, uh, visit us on site and progress our discussions. You never know with 
not just with the Chinese but with anybody, whether expressions of interest following several months of discussion are going to lead to actual contracts or agreements after many months of discussion. But we're talking about things about, like, for example, putting in a railroad so that we could increase that volume above uh, a million tons a year, um, which is sort of $500 million of contained nickel being transported just from a simple scraping and transporting operation to something much bigger. Again, who can tell where that will go? But are we heading in the right direction? Are we ambitious? Are we hardworking? Is this potentially the cheapest stock on AIM? Yes, 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 and yes. Well, okay, how much do you think you're worth? Uh, I think that it is completely ludicrous looking at comparable companies, and I've mentioned one or two, that our share price should be less than 10p, uh, but I would expect it within a year, I would hope that within a year, it will be very, very con considerably higher if the market uh, assesses our opportunities uh, as we do. If we come into production next year, of course, um, then the kind of profits that we will be making will be far in excess of our market capitalization today. And unless people at that stage are buying stocks on fractional price earnings ratios, um, then the price should be somewhat higher. Tell us uh, briefly, you mentioned that the uh, shares that you hold in other companies are worth more than your market cap. Yeah. What, uh, what, what other companies do you own? Well, uh, after we got listed, we got in some assets in iron ore and manganese, and we immediately floated them out. So that was a post-listing event, and our 50% share in that company, also listed on AIM, Red Rock Resources, is uh, worth as much as the market capitalization or just about as much as the market capitalization of Regency. Um, we also have a few other sort of miscellaneous interests we picked up along the way. And uh, we may end up, I would expect us, to end up with one or two more. On this AIM issue, might, I mean, since your assets are in Southeast Asia, perhaps a dual listing on Australia or even Canada? Um, yeah, I mean, a dual listing in Australia... Is that something you're considering? Uh, is possible. I still think, you know, when I speak to people in Australia, and they say, oh, Perth is just as, or Australia is just as good as London, I keep on saying, you know, no, it's not. There isn't anything like the depth of money, the depth of liquidity in Australia that there is in London. And you have to be an extremely Australian Australian not to understand that simple point. But I get the same thing from people here in London, uh, even big financial institutions telling me how AIM and the London market are better than the United States. And I just look at them as if they're on another planet. Uh, I suppose that just as uh, if you're Australian, you have a Natsai view of London and don't understand it. If you're English, you have a Natsai view of the world's largest capital market that has half of the world's uh, investment savings in it. But uh, ultimately, we would like to be a really large company with uh, investments and partnerships from China and a listing in the United States. Great. Well, Andrew, it's been a real pleasure. As we um, close, why don't you give out your website address and your ticker symbol, and not just your ticker symbol on AIM, but your ticker symbol in Frankfurt as well. Now you've got me into real trouble, because I can't remember our ticker symbol on Frankfurt. <laughs> well, I, I think it's it RG2. It I think it's Romeo Golf 2. Okay. And um, in London, uh, we are RGM, Romeo Golf Mike, and our website is www regency-minds.com regency-minds.com and uh, you know, uh, you're also very very welcome to call us uh, at our office here in London and ask for me 
Great. Well, that's not everyone that says that. Andrew Bell, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. With me now on the show is Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, who is in Hong Kong, uh, Campbell Smythe, a professional investor with years of experience, also advisor to the Phoenix Gold Fund in Malaysia, and Campbell is talking to us from Perth, Australia. And finally, Dave Skarika, the editor of Addicted to Profits. Dave is talking to us uh, from Nassau in the Bahamas. So what you're about to hear, ladies and gentlemen, is a multi continental conversation and you're also about to witness the beauty of skype and we're going to discuss the recent slide in the dollar um mike why don't you kick things off uh, is the dollar going to go down from here where's it going to go well it's it's already gone down quite a long way um people who uh, want to follow this uh, uh discussion might want to look at a chart which is on global edge investors um, I think it'd be pretty easy to find, but uh, I'll put a link onto it. Yeah, okay. Um, and what you'll find there is a chart over the last three years of the U.S. dollar. Uh, just quickly, it shows a low uh, in early 2005, uh, end of 2004, of just over 80. That's the trade-weighted dollar we're talking about. I think it was 80.39. The dollar rallied up to 92.63, and uh, now we're back around 82. So um, since the 92.63, which happened in uh, October 2005, um, in the middle of this chart, uh, we've come down quite a long way. And um, what, what I'm seeing here is it looks to me like it's hitting a support, well, it's hitting the low end of a trend line, and it is, is perhaps about ready to bounce. Um, so uh, I think others... We chatted about this briefly, share a view that we may see a bit of a bounce in the dollar. But my view is that after a little rally, it'll come back down here. And maybe it's building cause to break through with authority later this year, to break through authority, that level around 80 to 81. So I think the dollar's at an interesting juncture here, but maybe not yet done and ready to, uh, to break down. Dave, what's your view? Um, if you take, I'll, I'll take a more shorter term view because he was talking about since 2005 and the whatnot. Um, if you draw a trend line from the October 2006 top, which was a roughly 87 on the dollar index, and uh, and then you you take the top of the last rally, which was roughly 85 to 85 and a half in the first quarter of 2007, you get about I don't know, 83 to 83 and a half. So I think. That after, again, as, as, as he said, that um, we test this 81, 82 level, which is basically the all-time lows going back to 1993, we see a bit of a bounce. Now, we were joking about just before the show, the problem with that is in the short term, you look at the HUI index, it's at its resistance at 360 to 370, the HUI being the AMAX gold index and index of gold stock. So we kind of have a bit of a, you know, uh, a bit of a, a polar opposite here where the gold stocks look like they're about to break out, but the dollar looks like it's about to bounce. So probably what's going to happen is we'll see some short-term strength in the dollar, which will lead to a small decline off resistance in the gold stocks. 
and then that will be followed by another move lower in the dollar and a big breakout in, in the gold stocks. I actually think 80 to 81 could take a long time to break. And when I mean a long time, maybe 6 to 12 months, because if you look at, say, key multi-year resistance levels, and the example I'll use is 40 in oil, 40 being the 1980-1990 highs in oil, and then in the early part of this decade when oil was getting back up to 40, it took a few years to break out. So... Is it not possible for the dollar to bounce and uh, the Huey and the XAU to burst through and uh, rise as well? I don't think that would occur. But the one thing I do think is that when we're retesting, you know, the 80, 81 level after a small bounce, I think you'll see a big gold breakout then. I don't think we'll need overwhelming dollar uh, weakness to see the, the breakout. And the example I've used is that, in the first move of the gold bull market, from one tw- or, which saw from 2000 to 2003, saw gold go from 250 to 450. The dollar index decreased from 120 to 85. And the last move from roughly 2005 to the present, which has seen gold grow from roughly 450 to nearly 700, the dollar index has only gone down from 85 to 82. So, you know, which is only 3 4%. So I think the last move, and I think we're continuing that type of move, is seeing more of the dollar being, uh, or, or sorry, sorry, so gold being strong against all currencies rather than just being dependent on the dollar being weak. Campbell, how about you? Do you where do you think we go from here on the dollar? Uh, I think that 80 level is an extremely... Um important line in the sand for all for central banks and I think uh, that's going to take a lot of effort to break. Um, there's a lot of structural problems in the dollar and I think I think obviously there is there's a lot of fundamental reasons why it should be lower but uh, uh, when you consider things like China's reserves of the dollar are something like 1.2 trillion dollars or something incredible um, uh, obviously this, it doesn't pay anyone who's holding huge quantities to allow it to fall this fast. Um, I mean, ge- currency markets generally trend pretty solidly, and then they then they reverse savagely. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the dollar bounce from here, but will it really affect us? I I, I don't know. Um, the HUI went up very solidly in 2005. Uh, from I've got a level here from like 160 up to um, 270 in the face of dollar strength, and uh, that was a classic case of um, of resources actually uh, decoupling from the dollar equation. So. Uh, we might be in a situation going forward where the mining stocks uh, just perform irrespective of what the dollar does, uh, and and that would be very frustrating to most analysts, I imagine. <laughs> um, the the other thing I'm noticing is that a lot of the charts in the other commodities are really uh, starting to look quite similar, um, as in all challenging triple tops and things. If you look at platinum, uh, we're we're steadily moving up to nearly all time highs again, and uh, the CIB is uh, is nearly approaching its high again. Um, obviously, gold's uh, got a bit further to go relative to those markets. But uh, if if you if you take the view that gold is a market that's interfered with by central banks, etc., um, then it would kind of explain why it's a laggard. Um, but the actual gold the actual gold market, I, I, I just can't I can't imagine it falling from here really because when you look at the gold companies, none of them are making serious money. Most most gold operations are in serious supply problems um, because of costs and capex is rising all over the place. And this is what we're seeing in a lot of the juniors that we monitor. Uh, when you they, they go through the bankable feasibility stage, the stock gets cut in half because the the analysts uh, throw out all the reserves because um, uh, and the costs are up too high. 
So it's actually getting very, very hard to permit and build a gold project. So the actual chance of having new supply in the market in the future is quite low. Um, I think there's a very good chance the HOI could break out really solidly this year. Um, whether it happens now is, is another question, but it, there's, there's a lot of reasons to see this market higher. Um, the, the issue I've got is that seasonally there is a time coming up where it's better to be a seller of gold shares rather than a buyer. Um, it's not today, but it probably is in a couple of months. Uh, and maybe we've got a boring, a boring period during the, uh, the middle months of the year, and uh, then we have the big run later in the year. Um, guys, what do you think about this sort of seasonality question, given where we are? It's not been a normal year, really. I mean, we, well, I, I, it's been a sort of quasi-normal year, maybe I should rephrase myself, in that we've seen a bit of a rally in gold. It's not been anything really exciting like we saw last year. So the pullback um, will probably not be anything too exciting either, is my quick opinion. Dave? Um, with the seasonality, it's actually interesting because I'm just writing a, a small report on my in that in my letter, and actually what I found is that if you look at 01, 02, and 06, and what Campbell's talking about, there's a seasonality that's kind of a sell in May and go away in in, in the gold market that usually gold peaks or the gold stocks peak from April to June, and then they'll decline into the summer and kind of bounce around for a bit before they start moving upwards again in the fourth quarter. But what I found is since the beginning of this bull market in the first quarter of 2001, it's quite interesting that 01, 02, and 06 all peaked in uh, that, that spring period and then pulled back in the summer. But actually, if you look at 2003, um, basically you rallied throughout the spring and the summer, and 04 and 05 actually bottomed in the spring. So I, I don't know if we're going to see like the typical... Uh, June to, uh, top. I would see. I, I would have to say how strong this rally is. If the HUI, which we've been talking about, which is right now roughly at 370, were to spike up really large in the next two months to say five or 600, I would agree with Campbell. We're going to see that seasonal weakness during the summer. But if we kind of s slowly trend higher, and, and as Michael said, if we get just a, a short-term pullback, I would think that uh, it's like 2003, where the HUI rallied throughout the year. Nothing's going to be exactly the same, of course, but these are just, you know, researching past historical uh, years of, of, the, of the current bull market. Going back to the question of the dollar, Mike, um, you suggested before we began this interview that uh, the recent slide may be linked to the recent talks that have been going on between China and the U.S., yeah, I think that could be right. Um, let's just look at some figures. The Chinese now have over 1.2 trillion dollars of total foreign currency reserves, and over 700 billion—that's a big figure—700 billion of that represented by U.S. dollars. And now they've announced that uh, they don't want to increase that very quickly. They want to be diversifying those reserves. Meantime, the U.S. has been beating up on China a little bit saying that they're not, you know, trading fairly, that, that they should let their currency strengthen. Um, and now we have a G7 meeting, uh, which has been going on these last few days. And I'm just wondering if the Chinese might be sending a little message to uh, the U.S. and the G7 saying, you know, look, we have a lot to say about where the dollar trades. And if you put too much pressure on us for these trade talks and, and, and our currency, you know, we'll let your currency drop. So... 
I think it's a little bit of a warning shot that the Chinese are, are firing at the U.S., and uh, maybe it's just going to push the dollar down to this test level we were talking about. We'll see a bit of a bounce. But longer term, if the Chinese simply slow their buying of U.S. dollars, um, then, you know, that may be enough to put the U.S. dollar under that 80, 80 support level we're talking about. Well, for what it's worth, my crude technical analysis suggests that we're going to go um, somewhere between 81 and 82 and then we'll bounce, but we're not going to bounce that high. We might bounce to just below the 84 mark and then continue the downtrend. Now, ladies and gents, or I should say gentlemen, let's cut to the chase. Campbell, why don't you answer this first? Are you selling more than you're buying at the moment or are you buying more than you're selling? We're um, actually nearly fully invested in the fund, uh, and it's uh, positioned quite aggressively, actually, uh, with quite a lot of juniors and uh, some of the um, smaller mid-caps. Uh, so, uh, look, we're, we're bullish. Um, personally, I'm holding a slightly higher level of cash, but that's because I hold a much riskier portfolio, um, and uh, I always like keeping a margin of cash to sort of look for new deals. Um, are we selling more than we're buying? Uh, I'm, I'm aiming to be a seller, to be blunt, um, but the thing is I just keep getting the sell side of it wrong. Uh, there's <laughs> a, um, every, every, single time you, every single time you sell this sort of market, um, it goes up in your face again. So uh, I, think, I think what I'm doing is very, very cautiously moving out of some of the more aggressive things that we hold very big positions in. I mean, for instance, we've got a stock, couple of stocks which have um, grown for, say, 25 cents up to about a two bucks type thing, which has ended up being in a huge part of the portfolio, which... Just on a risk management measure, uh, you have to reduce a little bit. Um, we've had uh, good success stories in, in some of the journeys like St. Anton Resources, Carrot Gold, Crescent uh, Resources um, in Australia, Avoca, Bonisi, and these sort of stocks, which are all sort of project builders. Um, they're not, they're not a lot, most of them actually aren't in production yet, but they're, uh, they're past the bankable feasibility stage or they're, um, or they're in the not so risky stage of just drilling, um, drilling out reserves. Um, and the, this is where the funds actually had a big win from. And I think I think we've had a sort of compound performance of 55% for the last sort of five years based on this sort of stuff. Um, personally, I've probably been selling a fair bit more, but uh, I think it's just because I've just done a lot more um, very early stage and riskier stuff. So um, mm-hmm. that's been a better a better time to sort of to sell on may go away type thing. You know what I mean? Yep. Dave, how about you? Um, I would say new buying has been somewhat put on hold. Uh, we were lucky enough uh, to buy actually within like a day or two or, and right at the bottom in early March. Uh, I actually did it more on the, uh, just quickly here based on the fact that uh, the market at that time was trading with gold stocks and the put to call ratio, the 10 day moving average um, was extremely high, meaning there was tons of negativity. It was actually the highest level of the past um, 19 years. So that's why we thought there would be a bounce in early March. But right now, I would say I'm in a Campbell situation. If I have a stock that spikes or something that's more early stage that really moves, I'll sell into that. But I'm not putting any real money on the table unless it's unique situations. So what I did in early March is I bought some of the type of deals that Campbell's talking about, stuff that's building on reserves or has just gone into production or the whatnot because I felt that those had been most leveraged, leveraged in uh, a rally. And it has, it has been because some of that stuff has gone up 25, 50, you know, even 100% in, in um, 
under a month. So right now I'd say really new buying on hold and selling into strength in certain uh, individual place. And um, I know Campbell's fund uh, specializes in gold stocks. Are you a buyer of, of specifically of gold and silver, Dave, or are you uh, sort of blanketed across the resource sector? I'm kind of blanketed across the resource sector. Like I, I do, I've done some base metal deals. I've uh, bought some oil and gas trades and, and that sort of thing in the last few months when I said I was talking mm-hmm. about buying things. Mike, how about you? Well, I'm going to talk about three different types of uh, places I put my money. Uh, one is into uh, into core shares. My core positions are in resource shares. A lot of those I acquired through private placements. Now, one nice thing about that is that you very often get a warrant with these private placements. So I have a pretty interesting portfolio of warrants now, which cost me nothing, uh, many of which are in the money. And if I'm going to exercise them, I'm going to need cash. So. Uh, I actually am raising cash now, and uh, that cash is going on the side, and uh, it's going, well, some of it's going back into placements and and new positions, but some of it's sitting on the side, and some of it's going into puts. I'm definitely buying puts, and I think people here know that I tend to put a portion of my profits into puts, and I'll get more aggressive with that again, I think, in the next few days, um, putting uh, more, more profits into puts. And some of the cash is sitting there um, for flexibility and also maybe to exercise some of those warrants that are sitting there. But, I mean, one nice thing, and I just thought it was worth mentioning, is this game that we play with these warrants uh, leaves you with a lot of flexibility and you can be sitting with cash and still making money uh, with your warrants because they go up in value with the shares. I'd like to make a comment on that. Please go ahead. Yeah, because if you have, like, one advantage we have is we all get to buy placements and we invest in private uh, placements in the deals. And, yeah, warrants a huge advantage because, for example, say you have, for argument's sake, a 20-cent stock with a 25-cent warrant. If the stock goes to 50 or 75 cents, you can sell your whole position, double your money, and still make money if the stock goes up uh, further because you can exercise your warrants and then get, uh, in turn, get stock in the company. So that makes it... You know, kind of doing what we do specifically, it gives you a little more leeway and a little more flexibility. Can I add a point here, Dominic? Yes. Um, one thing you need to be very careful with private placements is uh, companies do not raise money when stocks are cheap. Uh, companies also do not raise money when it's most advantageous to new shareholders. <laughs> so companies usually may raise money when it's optimum to uh, reduce dilution and uh, make a management. Uh, may make management basically raise money at the highest price. So, um, my my particular bugbear is uh, is the bought deal. Uh, you see this in Canada a lot, and uh, frequently um, this is uh, again a private placement situation. But um, what happens is a broker goes and bids a company for a line of stock and uh, says we can raise money at X, and the company says sure, go do it. And uh, usually uh, then then you hear a lot of noise and analyst write ups and things, and then the, then the broker goes and does it. Unfortunately, bought deals are usually uh, quite um, are quite difficult to make money on in the junior sector because uh, you have liquidity issues. And uh, once um, the big flurry of activity is done, the stock usually falls back. So I, I tend to avoid bought deals um, because uh, I think they're just difficult. Uh, what I tend to look for is um, what's called non-brokered private placements, which is sort of typical typical for companies that really need the money and uh, they don't have many relationships with brokers and all that sort of thing so they, they can't generate a price spike 
and uh, you often get a good deal. So my only caveat on private placements is just be very careful of price because frequently uh, you can have a nasty surprise if the market turns on you. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Um, as we close, I'm going to ask you to give out uh, your website addresses so that people can get in touch with you. Um, in your case, Campbell, uh, you probably don't want people to get in touch with you. But nevertheless, why don't we start with you, Mike? Yeah, um, well, the website is globaledgeinvestors.com, and there are threads there, including one on this uh, conversation. So please come and have a look. Dave? Uh, addictedtoprofits.net. That's importance.net, and it's Dave at addictedtoprofits.net. And we have a free mailing list you can sign up to on the site. And uh, again, if you have any questions, you can also email me. And do you have a newsletter as well, don't you, Dave? Oh yeah, I have a monthly newsletter with weekly updates, and we actually and we cover about twenty stocks roughly uh, at any given time in the portfolio. And Campbell and Dominic, if, uh, if people want to email me, just uh, just send uh, emails via you by yourself and, uh, and relay them. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much, and uh, please do come on the show again. Thank you. Glad to. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any suggestions for the show, any guests you'd like me to interview, any mining companies you'd like me to get on, do please email me, dominic at mindsight.com. That's dominic at mindsight.com. And if you want to subscribe to the show via iTunes, you can do that. Go to um, commoditywatch.com podbean.com that's commoditywatch.podbean.com and click on the iTunes button there and then every time a new show comes on air it'll be automatically sent to your iTunes folder until next time goodbye Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp to discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.